0: Title This morning is Community The Gospel on Display. David Zall writes in his book Seculosity. It's the early 1890s, and two men are in Paris, and they're overheard talking about the new miracle called the telephone that had set the city abuzz. Quote, the first man says, when the bell rings, you get up and answer it? The reply comes, why, yes, certainly. First man, I see just like a servant, he concludes. One man took pride in being one of the first people in the city to own one. He proudly subordinated himself to being summoned to the clang of a bell. The other man realized that the innovation that was designed to serve him would cause him to become a servant to it. Fast forward, change the clang of a bell to a ding of a notification. Who knew that that little ding could change a society? Who knew that people would prefer a text of a friend rather than to talk to another friend right in front of them? The promise of technology is that it will lift you out of your isolation and limitation. It promises to create for you a new community. People have never been more accessible and yet so distant. Welcome to the digital community, the religion of technology where there is no problem that cannot be solved by Silicon Valley. We are told that tech companies aren't creating cool gadgets. They are making the world a better place. They are the saviors of our day in this religion. Its Bible is data, information at your fingertips. Just begin to type it into the search bar and the almighty Google will finish your thoughts. the all-knowing, omniscient Google will reply to you in 0.60 seconds because the omniscient Google God is just that amazing. We religiously give to our little God. Who of us would ever think of consider going without a data package or an internet service in our home? This media religion even comes with a spreading of misinformation, its own sort of false gospel, what we call today fake news. I'm not trying to demonize technology. As with so many things, technology is morally neutral. The issue is what we do with it. But I do wonder when Steve Jobs made the logo an apple with a bite taken out of it if it wasn't a reference to the garden. Paul here doesn't simply preach the gospel to this community in Thessalonica. He lives it. I want to take you back to chapter 1, verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you as has already been spoken and said, just, Father, thank you that we can be together to worship you. Lord, we have worshiped you in singing. We have worshiped you in giving. We now seek to worship you in the preaching and the hearing of your word. Lord, help us to be worshipers of you. And Lord, I wanna thank you for community. Lord, I wanna thank you for those words that Paul Tripp shared. Lord, that uh, just the, the great need that we have for community because we can deceive ourselves. And uh, Lord, we need each other. We need brothers and sisters around us. We need genuine community. And so Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together as we preach through this scripture, Lord, that you might be honored and exalted as we do so in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So let's get to it. Point number one, a community, not a corporation. Verse 17 and 18 again. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, I want you to just hear the heart of Paul. Hear the affection of Paul. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. Convenience of conversation has removed the closeness of relationship in our day. Communication ease has replaced relational depth and relational fellowship. A media community is available to you at your fingertips, in your pocket, or on your lap. Found in likes and friends and tribes. Whatever you believe, no matter how outrageously ridiculous that belief might be, you can find a community of people to agree with you. This community will confirm and encourage you in the outrageous. And when the enemies of your opinions show up, there will be a tribe to quickly come to your righteous defense. The Bible has a different picture, a more preferable picture of community. That's why at Trinity Church, we we must fight for genuine community. It's not that any one meeting when you leave your community group on a Wednesday night that this one meeting is so earth-shattering, so life-changing. It's the constant drip of relationship into our lives. Wednesday after Wednesday after Wednesday. We're not in one meeting. You become so relationally connected, but over months and years, And if I could go back to our announcement, 25 years with some relationships over the long haul. So we turn here to the end of chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3 of Thessalonians. And I want us to see here from the outset the affection that Paul has for this community of believers. Last week, we saw Paul's affection for the Word of God. This week, we're seeing Paul's affection for the people of God. Let's not define at Trinity health. Let's not define health based on how many people are in a room. Let's define health based on the closeness, the genuineness of relationships in that room. Let's not define a healthy church based on the quantity of people. Let's define health based on the quality of the relationship. Notice the community of relationships here they're familial, family rather than formal. He speaks with words more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. It's not a token affection that Paul is kind of tossing out there. It's likely that Paul is addressing charges that are being leveled against him. That he has left Thessalonica, he probably doesn't care for the people here in Thessalonia. And so he's probably uh, responding to those charges that he is out of sight and thus out of mind. He doesn't care about us. He's a charlatan like some of those other religious leaders who have come through our city. But Paul makes his love for the Thessalonians known and he does so in those familial terms he first says, but but since we were torn away from you, this is speaking of the affliction. It's the affliction that he's referring to that has ripped us apart. This phrase, torn away, is language of, of the gospel. We'll, we'll get to that in here in just a moment, but it's that affliction, that suffering. The word here in the original language is a orphanizo. If you were to break that down, up orphanizo. It's where we get our word orphan. He's speaking in family terms here when he's saying we were torn away from you, we were orphaned from you. Remember, he's already spoken in terms of family relations. Back in verse number seven, where he refers to himself with a motherly nurture. And then in verse number 11, with the fatherly encouragement. But he's saying here, we were separated harshly from you, torn apart from you, like a child from his parents. But since we were torn away from you, brothers. And so he sets that in the gospel. This isn't just a token. You know, hey, brother. there's, There's meaning To that word, brother, and we can insert sisters here as well. Brothers, not a token brother, but language of the gospel, meaning we were torn apart from you, brother, sister, who we were joined together in Christ because of the the redemption, because of the blood of Christ that we all have flowing through us. We were in affliction, ripped from you, orphaned. It's not a formality. It's not a token. Paul here is speaking of what Christ has accomplished and who we are together in Christ. We are such a different people as we gather on a Sunday morning from different backgrounds, from different places, different economics, different places of employment, some wealthy, some poor. And all the rest. But I want to ask you, look around you for a moment. Go ahead, turn your head. Brother and sister in the Lord. Joined in Christ. Not because you share the same college football team. Not because you share recipes. But you share a savior. Who poured out his blood. And it now flows in you. And you are brothers and sisters. We are a community of believers in Jesus Christ. In none other than Jesus Christ. So incredibly different. And yet. Well, I'll say from Johnny in the back in the sound booth, to Richard here in the front. Those two brothers have more in common than this world could ever dream of producing or creating. Johnny, what, you, you're 18? And Richard, what, you're 44? 34, there you go. Brothers because they are blood-bought in Jesus Christ. Listen, Trinity, we're not just a bunch of people who show up on a Sunday morning and we happen to land in the same building at the same time. We are a community of brothers and sisters in Christ. But we have to work at that community. Relationships don't just happen. Working on relationships begin by recognizing you're not a member of a corporation. You are a member of the people of God, a community of God. It's this gospel heart of Paul's. Is this heart of Paul's? Is that your heart for the community, the people of God? If in affliction you were torn away, Would you be joining with Paul saying, We endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. We've experienced in the past a little over a year a little bit of affliction. If you've been around, you know that I don't think it's a great affliction like our world has made it to be, in comparison to other historical afflictions, in comparison to other geographical afflictions, 2020 is a pretty small affliction. But that said, is this your heart? Can you join with Paul? And I ask you, viewing live stream as well, is this your heart to more eagerly, and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. It's not a corporation you come to this morning. It's a community of the people of God. Number two, a community hindered. The end of that verse, verse 18, I, Paul, again and again again and again, <laughs> again, and again. Easy for me to say, but Satan hindered us. Paul wants to be with them, tried to be with them again and again, but was hindered by Satan. Now you can open up the books and you will find a whole lot of speculation about what this hindering of Satan was, but here's the thing, we just don't know. And we're not going to take a whole lot of time speculating on what it is here because well, Holy Scripture doesn't tell us. So we would only be speculating. But we do know from other scriptures some things about Satan and about God. We do know, says so right here, Satan hinders ministry. The word hinder's that word literally means to cut into or to break open. It's this idea that the the road For Paul to travel down, not the literal road, but just that idea that the hinder, the the road for him to get there has been cut into or broken up, making the road impassable. Satan is preventing Paul from doing what he longingly desires to do, we're told. Now, some make too big of a deal out of Satan At Trinity, we seek to make a bigger deal out of God. We want to put our exclamation point on God, not on the enemy. But in doing so, hear this, it's possible that we can neglect the fact that we have an enemy who is seeking to hinder ministry. If you're looking to step out into ministry, I hope you are. Satan will oppose you. 2 Corinthians 12, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul to the Corinthians. Mark 4, and these are the ones along the path speaking, Jesus' parable, the seeds, where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. 2 Corinthians 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so scripture tells us some things about Satan. Scripture tells us things, obviously, about God. God rules supreme. God, not Satan, is in control. God is the sovereign one. Not Satan. Satan has already been defeated at the cross of Christ. God and Satan are not in some cosmic duel, duking it out day after day. You don't have to sit at the edge of your seat wondering at the end of today, I wonder, will it be God or will it be Satan as I lay my head down to sleep? God rules supreme. God is sovereign even over Satan himself. Actually, I like to think of it like this. Satan is on a leash. Satan is a pawn in the hand of God. Actually, when Paul longingly desires to go to one city and can't get there because he's hindered by Satan, well, that just means God has ministry opportunity for right where he's at. And so often, so quickly, believers just assign things away. Oh, the devil has hindered me. As opposed to, for all of us, let us open our eyes and say, what does God have for me right now? Because clearly there is ministry here where he has me. As you are hindered, as the road is cut up in front of you in affliction. Satan's on a leash. He is subjected to God and can only do what God permits. We're going to jump forward just for a second. But look how Paul refers to the afflictions in verse 3 of chapter 3. That no one be moved by these afflictions. So we're going to send Timothy, because we want him to encourage you so that you wouldn't be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Well, who destines that? Afflictions. Certainly not the devil. The devil. Do not assign him such power. God rules supreme. Ligonier writes, doesn't say who the author of this is, but let me just read to you. Satan has a measure of influence over this sinful world. He has this influence only by God's permission. For authority in this world is not rightfully his. He did not possess it before the fall. Knowing that God is sovereign over creation should encourage us to pray and to work for the sake of the gospel. Yes, it should because he is sovereign over the devil. He will bless our efforts for the sake of his name and accomplish his purpose through us. He's a tool. He's a pawn in the hand of God. It's not Paul's point to now show us what ministry is provided there for him in Athens, but just know that's the heart of Paul, and you've seen it before. He's been in a Philippian jail before, hindered and the jailer and his whole household became believers. Does Satan hinder today? I would say yes. How might Satan hinder today? Well, we could probably make quite a long list, but here's just a couple thoughts. The non-believer, the person who's given a sense a false sense of salvation, of assurance, Not truly a believer in Jesus Christ. Sure, I love Jesus. Don't we all love Jesus? I was born in America after all. It's a Christian nation. The person who prays a prayer in Sunday school when they were a child. The person who walks an aisle for an altar call and says, well, I've prayed that prayer. I live like the world. I was drunk last night, adultery yesterday, but I prayed that prayer. False sense of assurance. Or perhaps through a false gospel. The prosperity gospel, we believe, is a false gospel. Moralism, a moralistic gospel. I just need to continue to do good, and that's what's gonna save me. If you're here this morning, And you're thinking, what's going to, on that day, going to make me in right standing with God? And if your answer is, I'm a good person, that's a false gospel. Your righteousness, we're told in Isaiah, is like filthy rags. You will not be saved through your works, you will be saved by faith in the works of Jesus. His righteousness, not yours, is what saves. Or perhaps, how does Satan hinder? It's through the believer who's just, you know what, he is or she is genuinely repentant and trusting in Christ and yet just living indifferent. Indifferent towards his word. Indifferent towards seeking his face in prayer. Indifferent towards a heart of evangelism for those who don't know him. I believe that's Satan hindering today. He misleads, he blinds, he is the father of lies. And so we are a community, not a corporation. And that community is hindered. Number three, the community is in waiting. And I really love how verses 17 and 18, I want you to see the contrast. 17 and 18 and then 19 and 20. Because in 17 and 18, you have Paul saying, we really wanna be with you face to face. We eagerly desire that face to face. And then 19 and 20, let me read 19, 20 to you. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Did you see it? It, it, it? Paul's saying, I wish I could come to you and there's angst and then flipping right over. But Christ is coming and that's joy and hope. I wish I could be there, but I'm being hindered. Christ is coming, and he will come on time. (laughs) He will come when it's determined he will come. He will come again for his church. I wish I could come. I eagerly desire to come. Angst. Christ is coming. Joy. Christ is coming. The word there is parousia. It's a word that was used in this culture here to speak of the coming visit of a king or an emperor. It was a common word. It's not just a, a word that we find in our Bible. That would be just the culture of the day. It's the parousia. The king is coming. The emperor is coming. He's coming specifically. He's coming to our city. And so let us make ready for the coming of the king. There would be excitement, but it would also be filled with anxiety. Are we ready? Like, are the streets swept clean yet? Right? Like, and so there's this great excitement. The king is coming. He's going to visit with us in our city. And yet there'd be this great anxiety. Ha! Ah, the king's coming. Along with that, some cities would welcome their king with a crown. Maybe that's why Paul speaks of the crown of boasting. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul's anticipating this glorious day. Christ the King is coming. And their faith is complete. The king comes and this Thessalonian community of believers will be the crown presented to the king. For you are our glory and joy. It's a community in waiting. Number four, it's a community afflicted. Verse number one of chapter three, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith so that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. Paul exhorts them and Paul is exhorting us this morning that we would not be moved by these afflictions. Paul has in mind here his concern. And when he says not be moved, he's he's referring to the, the afflictions that would move them negatively in their faith in Christ Jesus. His concern for them is that they would be moved away from God. I believe that when afflictions come, we're all moved one way or the other. We either move towards God I need you more, God. I'm desperate for you, God. I thought I needed you before I really see how much I am in desperate need for you, God. Or people move away from God. How dare you, God? How dare you? Which direction do your afflictions move you? Scripture makes it clear that afflictions that comes to the believer's life are to grow our character. That in the afflictions, you and I are being shaped, formed into the image of Christ. And I'll submit to you, either in the afflictions, you are, your character is being formed or the character of God is being tested. You're, you're putting him on trial. Very few people remain in the middle indifferent either way. It's either praise be to you, God. It's either a, a Job moment, start of the book of Job, or it's a, it's a how dare you, God. Haven't you seen how Good of a person, how good of a life I've been living. Don't you see how good I am? How dare you, God, bring this affliction to me? How are you moved in the afflictions? Some of us witnessed a funeral yesterday. Some of us were at uh, Jojo Bowman's funeral. And I just want to report to you, you would have been proud of your brother, Alex Bowman. In the affliction, uh, he was moved to God. And so, I don't know. I don't know. For those of you who don't know, Alex is one of the pastors here on staff. He is in South Carolina now this morning. But um, he lost his brother. His brother nearest in age uh, to COVID and yesterday was a funeral and we gathered there was I don't know 400 500 600 people I'm not good at guessing and I don't know if that's me I don't know if I want the microphone it was a difficult week for Alex for sure And so I noticed before it started, Alex, Alex had a, he had a notepad with him. Oh boy, God help him. And when given the opportunity to take that microphone, he clearly presented the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was not moved negatively by this affliction. He was moved to God. You talk about a hindrance to his ministry. And then God opened a door for ministry. He said, I'm going to have you minister here today. Horatio Spafford. Many of you have heard of Horatio before. He knew something about suffering. He was a successful attorney, real estate investor, who lost his fortune in the great Chicago fire, 1871. Around the same time, his four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. Thinking a vacation was needed for his wife and four daughters, he sent his wife on a ship to England finishing up business at home. He was planning to join them after he took care of the details. However, his wife and daughter, as they were crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship was involved in a tragic collision and it sunk. And more than 200 people died, lost their lives on that ship, including all four of Horatio's daughters. Unthinkable. His wife, Anna, survived the tragedy. When she arrived in England, her telegram to her husband began with these words. Saved alone, what shall I do? Horatio immediately set sail for England. And at one point of the voyage, the captain of the ship, aware of the tragedy that had just taken place, summoned... Horatio, to tell him that they were now passing over the waters where his four daughters perished. Unthinkable. As Horatio thought about his daughters, words of comfort and hope began to fill his mind and he began to write them down. When peace like a river Attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. When you signed up for Christ, you became a part of the community of the afflicted. Peter tells us, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that surround you. That's what we're signed up for. Number five, it's a community of faith. So he sends Timothy. Why? To check on the finances? No. To check on the size of the church? No, he sends Timothy to check on the people's faith. How's the faith of the community? Makes sense, doesn't it? We don't know what the level of affliction that they were facing. We just know that in this little letter, Paul keeps referencing it. How difficult church life must be for these early first century believers. So he sends Timothy to check in on them because they're so severely afflicted. How are they doing in God? Are they moved in this affliction? Timothy, we need you to go. Verse number two. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith. What a beautiful picture! What a beautiful language that exhorts you, establish and exhorts you. It's where we get our word, buttress. We're sending you to be a buttress, to be a support to their faith in Christ Jesus. That, verse 3, for you, that no one, excuse me, that no one be moved by these afflictions. Next, it's a community with the gospel on display. Thessalonians is this great little letter. It doesn't always teach community, it doesn't always teach gospel, but it regularly shows community and it regularly shows gospel. You see, when Paul sends Timothy, Paul is losing something, he is losing someone and it will be his loss will be the people's gain. It's no small sacrifice for Paul to send Timothy, his close companion in the ministry, the one who he calls his son in the faith. He's losing someone dear to him. It's a great sacrifice. Paul may lose Timothy permanently because of the affliction. That was a reality So think of the sacrifice that Paul is making here when he says, we're sending Timothy to you because we need to buttress your faith and we want to make sure you're not moved by these afflictions. But I also want to think about Timothy, the sacrifice Timothy is making. This is a short-term missions trip that could be life-threatening. Paul can't go. So Paul sends, and he sends for the purpose of strengthening their faith, and Timothy willingly goes. Why? Because they both love and care for this community. This is the gospel lived. This is the gospel on display rather than the gospel taught in words. It wasn't the last time. Paul to the Philippians, I hope in the Lord Jesus... To send Timothy to you soon, so that I too will be cheered by news of you. For I have no one else like him, for they all seek their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. This is not what's best for Paul. It's not what's best for him and his kingdom. It's about the gospel. The gospel is being displayed here. So I want you to now hold your communion elements. And let me go ahead and ask the worship team to come and join me. Paul here is demonstrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the Father sent the Son. not for the benefit of the father, and the son was willing, and Paul was a beneficiary of the father's sacrifice. In one sense, we can maybe say, how could Paul keep Timothy, having received Jesus Christ from the father? How could Paul hoard or keep Timothy back? That would be incredibly selfish and be a, an attempt to build man's kingdom. Paul loved the Thessalonians because he had been already loved by God. The gospel came to Paul, love came to Paul, and now he sends Timothy. Romans 8:32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us? all things. And so you hold in your hands this wafer and this cup and this wafer represents none other than the body of Christ. Praise be to God. The father sent the son. And when he did so, he knew he was sending him into affliction. body of Christ broken for you and me if you're not a believer in the room we would simply just ask you to set the elements to the side parents if your children are here with you please honor and respect it's a great opportunity to parent children if they're not a believer right this is not a cracker and a little snack this represents something. This is the body. This represents the body of Jesus Christ broken on your behalf, the believer's behalf. And so we regularly receive of this communion because Paul tells us in Corinthians that we are to remember what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Will you take with me? This is the blood of, represents the blood of Christ. His blood was spilled and poured out for you and me, for the believer, for those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. We're to take of this cup to remember what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Praise be to God. The community joins together. You know, just randomly showing up in this room at 10 o'clock, just randomly taking of a, of a little wafer and a little cup. Now, we are coming together as a community to worship our God and to remember what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So praise be to God. Let's take the cup together. And now would you stand with me and let's lift our voices and worship our God. We've got to come behind that and ask you, is it, is it well with your soul? Well, I'll read the benediction in just a moment. It's a text we've already been preaching through. i get there in just a second. If you're here this morning and it's not with your soul, well, with your soul, You're not right with the Lord. We want to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to chat. As a matter of fact, if I could have the elders and your wives, would you guys come? Line up across the front. And we're just going to close in prayer. Join with us, Richard. Um, Just going to close in prayer, and we'll dismiss. But if it's not well with your soul, would you make your way and spend a few moments chatting with one of one of these therefore when we could bear it no longer we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith may that be taking place this morning that no one Be moved by these afflictions. So, God, we thank you for just a little bit of time on a Sunday morning gathering.